welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Jessica Isom, a board-certified community psychiatrist who practices clinically in the federally qualified health center, Codman Square Health Center in Dorchester, Massachusetts. She is also involved in graduate medical education and healthcare workforce development in her role as a clinical instructor in the Yale University Department of Psychiatry, which has inspired many invited talks and workshops around social justice and health equity. Additionally, Dr. Isom is a physician entrepreneur who owns the consulting business Vision for Equity, LLC, that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, anti-racism, and racial equity. We talk about how in medicine and mental health, race, specifically being black identified, is typically discussed as a risk factor for ill health when racism is the root and primary risk factor. Dr. Isom explains that this approach pathologizes blackness, as it's intended to, and directs interventions and treatment in ways that do harm and perpetuate racism by incorrectly explaining health disparities as individual and biological, rather than rooted in the systemic racism that creates inequity, stress, barriers to access, poor treatment, and that intersects with many other social determinants of health. She further details how this approach of pathologizing blackness is deficit-focused and promotes a deficit-based ideology and approach to addressing health disparities and the overall well-being of black people. We talk about how whiteness and Western Eurocentricity shows up in mental health, including the DSM, and Dr. Isom shares how she navigates this in her clinical work. She also shares her thoughts on black healing and joy. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs, and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now... The interview. Hey, Dr. Isom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You and I have been trying to get this scheduled for a while now. So I'm just so excited to have you on here and, you know, get to share your expertise with folks who follow the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and I'm glad that we could figure it out eventually. Yeah, and before we get into it, I I just want to say, you know, you have like some of the best, most epic Twitter threads ever, you know, uh, just phenomenal use of graphics and pictures and memes you've got going on. Yeah, thank you. It's actually pretty fun creating those, even though the topic itself can be heavy at times. It's fun searching through and trying to make it as engaging as possible to kind of lighten it a bit. So thank you. So I think... One of the ways you and I really connected, um, and I don't remember if it was like a year ago or more, because ever Mm -hmm. since 2020, everything's a bit of a time warp. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know we were engaging around how in mental health and in medicine, and really in so many things, um, race gets talked about as a risk factor, like when, you know, it's discussed uh, when education's done around it, right? So like future Mm -hmm. doctors, future mental health providers are like learning this, that like race is this risk factor. And we were talking about how racism is the risk factor. So I wanted to just like go for it right away around that Mm -hmm. and get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, it's I and every time this comes up, I, I have flashbacks to my medical education experience, which was pretty stereotypical. Uh, however, I was a completely different Jessica back then. That was before um, I'd had my public health exposures. So I was coming out of uh, undergraduate and really, really green. And I was sitting in my medical school first and second year courses. And, you know, there's these presentations, these recordings that you watch and repeatedly in every one, they talk about risk factors and they would put black on those slides. And I would always wonder, hmm, when did I become a risk factor just mm-hmm. by being alive? This is strange. And there was never really a clear articulation of that in those first two years, besides a, a really brief four-hour health disparities half day. So when I got to my school of public health year and took a health equity close, that's when my brain kind of exploded, like, wow, this is that context that explains the spidey senses that were activated in these different settings where blackness became a risk factor without any really further interrogation. So that was that was pretty amazing. And so what does it mean for people? Because we're gonna we're talking about physicians, mental health providers patients, mm-hmm. clients, people, right? People, participants. What does it mean for people when race is considered a risk factor? Like what is mm-hmm. when black is considered, because we're going to get right into the anti, anti, be specific around anti-black racism here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a, it serves a function. It serves multiple functions. So one, you know, to say that, that within a, a thing and here we're talking about blackness embodied by black people, Black identified people to say that that's the source of a pathology. Uh, specifically for us as health professionals, it functions to um, shape how we might intervene on the way that that pathology, quote unquote, reveals itself. Um, so we're having a conversation about racial or ethnic disparities. We can explain away a lot of the root causes as something within the individual that's inherent, that's biological, and then that really narrows down what we could do to help those people. So that's one function, kind of allows us to morally disengage from our own complicity in uh, contributing to the real risk factor, which is racism. Two, I think it functions in a very sinister way to um, invade Black people specifically, the way that they think about themselves and their own community uh, in a really deficit-focused way, where we're born naturally with this, you know, this assumed pathology that makes us more sick, more ill, more disordered than other groups. And that affects how we engage uh, throughout our life course as well. Uh, and that that's, that's probably the most uh, difficult part to contend with, because I'll see in even public conversations about race and racism, that that is a very popularized understanding, even within my own community. Um, so there has to be intervention on everybody's <laughs> misunderstanding, not just that of white people uh, in positions of power and privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And so what happens when we flip it and we are clear that racism is really the risk factor or even really beyond a risk factor, right? Racism creates multiple risk factors that affect people. You know, what what does that do when we frame it that way? Well, the first thing it does is it forces us to have a conversation about what racism is, which often can be a hot mess because um, (laughs) people are socialized into so many different understandings of what racism is. And for people who have lived experience of racism, it's very clear what it is to a certain extent. However, even those with lived experience can often narrow down the definition to just interpersonal prejudice and discrimination and um, convince themselves that other manifestations are not are not there, such as like institutional manifestations of racism or systemic manifestations of it. So when that conversation uh, happens in whatever context, it's great that it's happening, but it's often not very productive because there's a real resistance to talking about racism in a multi-level way. Um, But at the same time, there is interpersonal racism. It does happen. It is the way that institutions are allowed to perpetrate you know, race-based treatment of people. Um, it's through people enacting, you know, policies and practices and adopting a culture where that's normative and okay. So it's not not helpful to have a focus on that conversation, but it can't be the only focus at the interpersonal level because it obscures all of the other um, ways that racism is kind of baked into how we are accessing lots of things from <laughs> banking institutions to educational institutions to 
uh, going to get some, you know, food at Starbucks. So um, there's a lot of layers there that get missed because of that narrow focus on the interpersonal level. Yeah. And when we talk about racism and we get into the systemic aspects of it, right, and we look at mental health, you know, what are some ways that racism affects mental health and the way we address mental health as well? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. And it's interesting because I, I am a psychiatrist trained in a traditional psychiatry residency on top of traditional medical training as a physician. And all of that is a very Western European focused way of understanding um, what goes well inside the human body and brain and what does not go quite so well. And specifically with, with mental health, um, because we do uh, imagine to a certain extent, what is this demarcation between what's normal and what's not, um, what's normal versus pathological or what's normal versus disordered. When there's a dominant um, orientation or like a dominant narrative or dominant way of understanding human behavior that infiltrates the entire field, that's not really representative of the global majority it becomes a bit tricky to know what to do with this training that I invested so much time and uh, mm. finances in. So here we are <laughs> with like the current conflict of, well, what do you, what do you do with this? And like, how do you negotiate that tension of this is a piece of understanding that is considered to be superior, but it's not necessarily superior at all. I mean, there wasn't like a, a real competition to determine whose understanding of the human mind and human behavior should be, you know, supreme. So it's complicated, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, you know, like, as you're talking about that, you know, I think of whiteness and how it sets itself up as the standard, right? And then mm -hmm. for someone to even get treatment, you know, if they're going to have insurance, insurance is only going to cover certain types of treatment, which then again have to be whatever was deemed acceptable, like evidence based by, mm -hmm. by whiteness once again, you know, which, so it just keeps reinforcing itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, um, I was just doing a, a, a talk with a friend, uh, Freddie and Fred, Frederick Chagog, who talks about, his lived experience of uh, having a substance use disorder and experiencing lots of different, uh, very vulnerable positions throughout his life, including lacking stable housing. And he talks about these expectations in that particular space that everybody will do the same cookie cutter uh, approach to their, their substance use disorder, which often includes things like AA, you know, a peer support uh, intervention when AA is quite clearly <laughs> created by, White, white men specifically, and has a very specific orientation around spirituality, um, and often, like many other contexts, doesn't really allow for conversations about lived experiences that include uh, racism, um, or really a lot of other social uh, social uh, positions and, and their consequences in our society. So to say, for example, for Freddie, that uh, he's in a program and there, there's an expectation that he will do AA and that that represents for him as a client or patient being truly engaged in his recovery, for that to be the expectation, that's a manifestation of like uninterrogated whiteness shaping like what's supposed to be normative. When in reality, AA may not be for Freddie. <laughs> it may or may not be, right? Um, different people will uh, make use of different resources, but there are lots of other ways, other paths to recovery from a substance use disorder that might be more culturally sensitive and culturally responsive, but those are not a part of the mainstream. So they may not be uh, respected or valued as much. For example, if Freddie were pursuing those and he gets a couple notches taken off of his recovery reputation. Um, and that's, that's problematic and applies to a number of other uh, areas beyond substance use disorders as well. So... Yeah, if, if people are given a specific treatment, you know, medic, whatever it is, and they don't, and then for whatever reason, they have an issue. So let's say someone gets mm -hmm. prescribed medication, but they can't afford the medication. Mm -hmm. And then they're not, so they're not taking the medication or like your friend, Freddie, what was told for him to do doesn't work for him, right? Then they get labeled as non-compliant or non-adherent, mm -hmm. right? So it was like, 
I remember at one point in my training, I think instead of saying non-compliant, we were supposed to say non-adherent as if that was mm-hmm. like less stigmatizing <laughs> or something. Yeah, I say non-adherent now. I did I did make the shift, but the question is, is it adherent to what? And then the and then the other question is, is it adherent to what and why? <laughs> why is this the thing to be adhered to? And then who decides what makes it adherable or adherent worthy? <laughs> but totally. we never get there. We don't really get there often. So So as you're talking about, you know, Eurocentric um, you know, view with medicine and mental health, um, you know. Let's talk a little bit about the DSM and for folks who are listening who don't know about the DSM, right? It's the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which has the various mental health diagnoses and people have to meet certain symptoms. And if you meet these symptoms and duration and different things like that, when it began, then, you know, you could be diagnosed with that, uh, that disorder, Uh, or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be called. And so I guess before I get into some more specific questions, just like, what are like, what are some of your initial thoughts about the DSM and some of the challenges, you know, you have with the DSM? Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the exercises we did during residency was around the DSM during our intern year, which is our first year. And it was to help us process our conflicted feelings about (laughs) what's considered to be, quote unquote, the Bible of psychiatry, and really so many other mental health professions as well. And that I appreciated that exercise. And yet it still didn't necessarily dive deep into who created it, uh, what gets filtered through, and what gets left left out. Um, And all of those, you know, multiple layers. So one of the reasons why we had to interrogate it is because we have to use it. And our patients have to use it as well. And that, because that's our gateway to, to getting compensated um, treatment. It's our gateway to being able to bill for a service, which helps us, you know, function in our role. And it's their gateway to accessing our time and referrals and all sorts of things. So we're, we're tied to it. And it does have a complicated history. It has helped the mental health professions be more similar to other disciplines. So being able to hand a diagnosis, a diagnostic label to a patient parallels how the rest of medicine functions. You present with signs and symptoms, they meet criteria for this particular diagnostic label, you get that diagnostic label applied, and then there's the treatment that comes after. So it makes sense in that way, uh, but it's a bit more messier (laughs) than that. Um, So I do have conflicted feelings about it, and some of that has been processed just by the very nature of being uh, in the profession that I'm in. But often, um, there's not a lot of conversation around who's been invited to the table, even within the, in that context, who's invited to the table to have a conversation about, um, what exactly are we doing here? <laughs> like, what are we describing? Uh, for whom are we describing this? Uh, what's centered versus on the periphery, like in the back of the DSM, all the way in the back, like those cultural culture bound syndromes, for example, um, we don't often talk about that. Um, very much. So that's a, that's the, the messy part alongside the rest of the mess that I haven't even gone through yet. So. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always important with a discussion of the DSM and mental health to point out that, you know, in 1851, Samuel Cartwright came up with a diagnosis called drapetomania, which was mm-hmm. quote, a disease causing slaves to run away end quote. Mm -hmm. And that was considered like a legitimate, well, again, by whom, uh, Mm -hmm. diagnosis, which, you know, because slavery was supposed to be considered so great that it would be crazy for black people to escape. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the history. Like that's the history we're dealing with, with this, with mental health. And I would say all of medicine too. I mean, if people were really thorough, in exploring the origins of their profession, they would understand that all of them have a developmental history um, that coincides with colonialism, race-based slavery, um, just lots of icky things from our history. And they weren't just these siloed things developing alongside each other, they reinforced each other in lots of ways. So there is just very 
um, what we would consider to be ridiculous ways of associating racial groups with diagnostic labels, with like cultural characteristics and behaviors and all those sorts of things that we don't necessarily verbalize explicitly, necessarily as explicitly, not that we don't, some of us still do anymore, but it still reveals itself in the way that we think about the patients that we're working with. So it might come out in like a comment about how someone's presenting and what it means, even if it doesn't explicitly say, well, I believe that all Black women, for example, are highly promiscuous. Uh, It might reveal itself in, here we go, another person coming in for SDI testing. They can't just, you know, they can't keep their legs legs closed. Ha ha ha, you know? Um, So if people were really um, thorough in their exploration of those roots, they would see a lot of the explicit language that describes how we still think today, but it just comes out in more socially acceptable ways, which often just means it's more subtle and or it's said behind closed doors or only in specific groups. And uh, we were talking about this book um, the other day that has a lot of like primary quotes in it. Um, from different specialties within medicine, including psychiatry and also neurology, which would be relevant to mental health professionals that talk about black brains and black nerves and black eyes and black hearts and black kidneys and black emotions, black feelings in a really um, biologically race-based way that was infused with this racial inferiority and superiority belief of uh, blackness being at the bottom and whiteness being superior. And um Again, we can't disavow that and pretend that didn't make its way into the DSM uh, from its origins all the way to the DSM 5 TR that just launched um, from the APA. Again, a conversation that's subjugated (laughs) in favor of this pretending that we are past those um, historical origins when in reality we haven't really metabolized them. They're They're just there. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges and you spoke to it is like, this is something we have to use Mm -hmm. if we're going to get paid and if people are going to have their insurance cover Mm -hmm. um, these services. And so that always feels like this tension that's incredibly frustrating because it's like, okay, we have to use this, but it's so problematic, but we have to use Mm -hmm. it. And how does that then, you know, affect practitioners also by Mm -hmm. just continuing to like accept in a way even though that we might be critical of it but like it i think it's doing something over time because it's like there's like a a potentially like numbing that -hmm. can happen to the practitioner utilizing it as well if that i don't know if that makes sense i mean i think it does because for example what i'll say is i know a lot of clinicians who will make use of the diagnosis um adjustment disorder it could be adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety, anxious and dep- uh, depression, de- anxiety and depression <laughs> symptoms. But really, to me, adjustment disorder is what these people specifically use to describe um, normal reactions to experiences of life, inclusive of oppression. Um, so your job, um, your boss is racist uh, and you know sexist, just misogynoir everywhere. You come to my office, you're describing these symptoms, adjustment disorder, or you just lost access to stable housing, adjustment disorder, Um, or you're, you know, there's just like that. I've seen that as one way of combating um, this pressure to apply something by making use of some of those diagnostic labels that give you some flexibility. And then I've also seen people, not as many, make use of Z, Z codes, And I am still not making use of these on a consistent basis um, and recently got a list from one of my colleagues, Dr. Francis Liu, who spent time going through the entire DSM, pulling out Z codes that are relevant to like cultural or social issues. And that has been one way, for example, of naming uh, lack of stable housing or naming racism uh, or some form of discrimination. It's not racism, but some form of discrimination in the chart, which can feel you know, like you're honoring more of the patient's experience and your own. So those are two things that can be helpful. And at the same time, we are forced to, to a certain extent, come to some conclusion about what's going on to make a case for this patient or client being um, appropriate for accessing us so that there's such a transactional nature to the application of diagnostic label 
that we and the patient slash client have to be complicit in to maintain our relationship through an insurer based, you know, system cash pay, obviously, you know, you can kind of do whatever you would like to do there. Um, I'm assuming I don't do cash pay, but a lot of people do. And it's probably a bit less um, constrained in that particular like treatment model. Yeah. And then, it, and then it can be an access issue for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think something that it just always comes down to is this approach puts the problem inside the person, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that I know I've read a lot of things from people, not people, individuals and groups who are critical of psychiatry specifically and the mental health professions broadly. Um, And I don't recall if someone specifically made use of the language gaslighting. However, as I've become more familiar with that language relevant to my own professions, developmental journey (laughs) of training, where there's lots of gaslighting in there, I think it's applicable to and to how we interact with patients in the mental health profession. Because it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's not genuine to say this is your, and for some people it truly is MDD. You have major depressive disorder. You meet criteria. You have debilitating periods lasting a week or more where these are the things that you experience and you can't, you cannot function or it's very difficult for you to do so. And at the same time, um, it can get a little bit murky where we're not also acknowledging that what's producing maybe a depressive episode or producing something that looks like MDD might very well be what you're exposed to in the environment around you, completely outside of your control. Um, That's often not the conversation that we're having, which is why we often recommend individual-based things like medication. You should exercise more, eat more healthy, find some friends, you know, go get some sunlight, which doesn't really acknowledge the structural vulnerabilities that put them in a position to, to have that depressive episode, you know, in the first place potentially for that individual where it's a bit more complicated than just being vulnerable to depressive episodes. Addressing the structures that are affecting, you know, the oppressive structures is a huge, is a huge challenge, right? Like to, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some interesting stuff around like the clinician activist and, you know, Mm kind of like doing like empowerment advocacy process with, with, uh, clients um mm-hmm. that that i think is pretty interesting um and i and i've done some of that with like youth i've worked with in the past mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but it's always a challenge it's because because if if those systems were easy to change like they wouldn't still be there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. affecting right. all of us right 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 you know i mean and it's i think that the clinician activist role um yeah. I mean, there could be a partnership in doing that and like helping supporting advocacy by leveraging credentials, which happens for me a lot. Um, so for example, there's some slum landlord or a really slow to respond system or institution and throwing around the credentials can help a response happen more quickly <laughs> or more thoughtfully. Um, another activist orientation might be someone's presenting with workplace stress and just naming that this is your environment. It's not, it's not you (laughs) like, and yes, you do have to cope. And at the same time, um, this is a hostile workplace and there are some rules and regulations that you're supposed to be able to make use of to protect you from that treatment. And, um, or someone's having a struggle with anxiety or ADHD and it's letting them know that, Hey, there's this thing called the ADA and you can get access to accommodations in your workplace those sorts of things feel like they're more of that clinician activist um, intervention. And at the same time, with very limited time and with the insurer's eyes on your chart, <laughs> there's the expectation that you're going to go through and do a symptom assessment in a number of domains that may or may not be directly relevant to what's most distressing to that patient or client in the moment. So there's always this negotiation between how am I going to use this 15 or 25 minutes or 60 minutes that I have to accomplish the goals that the insurer wants me to accomplish, but also accomplish something that's more meaningful to both me and the patient or client that I'm working with. So it's a lot to juggle. Yeah. It can be fun though. Sticking it to the, <laughs> sticking <laughs> it to the man. I'm like, we're going to get them today. They're going to, they're going to respond to this email 
or they're going to see this letter and they're going to, you know, transfer you out of this, this uh, housing that has rats and bed bugs, you know? So those are, those are the wins that feel good. And at the same time, those wins don't necessarily outnumber the the not wins, the the losses. So um, yeah, I meant that. I meant the juggling with like the insurance part. Um, oh yeah, like the yeah. chart part. But you do you do you just like say to the patient like, hey, like this is the situation in terms of like how I kind of we kind of have to, you know, cover what the insurance is looking at, but also like this is what I see is going on for you, and you're telling me is going on for you, and let's you know tr- figure out a way to make this all work. Like, do you have um, that conversation I, with patients? Well, I'll, I might say things like, you know, these are the questions I have to ask. Just bear with me. Or um, I typically start off, depending on like the level of acuity for the visit, I'll start off in a more conversational way. Um, and then I'll reserve time like towards the end or maybe towards the middle to dive into those questions that are more sometimes more relevant to the insurer than they are to how the patient's doing in the moment. Um, so it's, it's kind of creating space for all those things at the same time and, um, letting them know up front, especially if they're like, Whoa, where's this coming from? Look, I, <laughs> I have to ask these questions. This is just how it is. So just bear with me and we'll get through these. Um, but sometimes those questions are directly relevant to what they're presenting with. So it's just not that big of a deal. Um, so it kind of varies, but, uh, I do think, I mean, at least for me in the way that I practice, I want it to be more of a co- a conversation and an interrogation. Um, and I fortunately don't have to do 15 minute med checks. I have more time for my follow-up visit. So there's that flexibility to do more of the check-in in addition to the checklist that's required for documentation and billing purposes. So I feel lucky in that way. Yeah. That sounds like a great way to do it the way, you know, you're describing there. So I wanted to talk about something that, you know, you wrote about recently where you left the American Psychiatric Association due to its unwillingness to address racism beyond statements. At least that's what I got from, you know, part of what I got from what you wrote and your position on that. I was just wondering if you uh, wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I um, I think a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, some people have dived into this, the water um, of like naming institutional dynamics and trying to figure out a way to address them more recently. And then there are people who've been doing it for a very long time, like pre-George Floyd. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And I'm one of those people who's been doing it for a very long time by choice and force um, based on how, how I'm, I'm positioned. So uh, as a black um, college student, as a black medical student, <laughs> black resident and now as a black uh, psychiatrist there's this responsibility that you will uh, and this is from the ancestors but also from the institution that you'll not only do your job but you'll also work to improve things currently for people like you and also those who come after you so that that is that arc is important to understand um so entering into the apa it's like okay i've been doing this for how long (laughs) like okay and now we're here i've arrived and um grown. And I, you know, I want to contribute to uh, how the organization functions, its outputs, and how that can directly benefit people from even my own family who access psychiatry and have psychiatry has been a large part of keeping them functional. Um, So it's also very personal too. So um, I'm very optimistic. I always have been, I can be very enthusiastic and hopeful. And I brought that energy to the APA and got a lot out, out of it. Um, especially early on as far as networking and meeting people and getting a better understanding of the larger scope of the field. But as I um, got more into what some people have called, which I agree with, the pet to threat um, transition, things got a bit uh, shakier. Um, So it was less like fun and engaging and like a sort of enjoyable challenge and more of like a tax. Um, in trying to, to work within the APA assembly, which is like the governing body of the, the organization. And it just wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. It felt like taking hits. Um, and although people would express what I would say, a spectrum of like authentic empathy 
and moral engagement with the issues I was talking about, all the way to more performative empathy and performative moral engagement. Um, you know, after a while, it was sort of like, well, either you uh, walk the walk or talk the talk. And there was a lot more talking than walking. And, you know, time is very limited. And as I've grown into being a mom, having that responsibility, and also just doing other things outside of being in that one organization, I realized that we have to ration our time and be in places where our full value <laughs> is like appreciated and things of that nature. So if I notice at this point, and it's been this way for some time, if I notice that I'm not able to grow and expand, then I don't want to be there. Um, so I was being more constrained than anything else. So it's for me, looking back, I contributed a lot and I'm, you know, grateful for having had moments to contribute and spaces to kind of insert my ideology in places that will live on forever, like modules and presentations and articles and things like that. But at the same time, life is short. So I, if I'm going to intervene and make psychiatry something more useful to Black people, I have to be in places and spaces where that's more possible. Um, so I wrote the piece to kind of like to catalog that journey and that evolution and to offer some last um, suggestions, at least for now, about what things would need to change, but to just really be honest and authentic. So if I have a conversation with my daughter, like you know, 15 years from now, she can say, okay, like you were true to yourself and you made a decision that was um, authentic to you and how you want to show up in the world. Um, so that's kind of where, that's kind of the, the, the arc of that particular story, which is not unique in any way, shape or form. And I got that feedback after I released it that it spoke to and validated a lot of people's experiences in a number of different uh, spaces. So for sure, like DEI committees and things like that. And so, many, <laughs> so many spaces. Yeah. I mean, it's just the thing that's fascinating about like whiteness is that it's like, if people only knew how act like, and they do know, and that's why it's threatening. Um, if they, could fully appreciate the level of excellence required to exist in the same spaces as people who've been granted access to positions of power and privilege through some merits and a whole lot of whiteness. Um, you know, I think we would have different experiences, but in, in a very like psycho psychodynamic way, um, if you can't be too good as a black person, it's just not, it's not possible. It's just not. Um, and you can't be too good and also be counter-cultural at the same time. Um, you have to be non-threatening, which means not not that good. And also you have to be uh, interested in kind of going with the flow of the dominant culture. So any person I know, and I talk to lots of people across the country who are really good <laughs> at what they do, they're excellent and are counter-cultural, they run into lots of trouble. And DEI spaces or DEIA spaces are one of those ways that it reveals itself. But even separate from that space, just being a good psychiatrist who's a medical director, for example, and does no DEIA, uh, you might run into some of the same um, difficulties because Black excellence is just not supposed to exist. <laughs> so I'm just pausing because that is a powerful statement and a horrific reality. Yeah. And irrational, right? Like you, in a rational sense, but want the best people for the job um, or want all hands on deck, uh, you know, where people can contribute equally, you know, what they have to offer. But um, r what racism dis distorts is like a rational way of existing in relationship with other human beings. It does not make any sense. And I've come to, to accept that it does not make sense. And I'll, I was just telling some residents today, it's not supposed to make sense. It's irrational. It absolutely makes no sense. Um, and starting from that point helps, but it doesn't take away the, you know, the real human reaction to having to exist with people who are being entirely irrational in their decision-making and in their beliefs. But that's like sanctioned, um, you know, by by dominant culture. So yeah, a very young realization, uh, an early career realization for me, which I appreciate because it will help me <laughs> as I continue to grow in my career for future future decades. Yeah, one of the things that Eduardo Bonilla Silva writes about is how um, racism and whiteness like 
and that that ideology is not rational and it can mm-hmm. sh- it will change to fit whatever white supremacy needs it to fit and so mm-hmm. it it's always a challenge to expose it to critique it you know and everything because it can just it can just change and it's not it's not a rational argument like you're saying it can't be rational mm-hmm. and then the sick irony with um what we're talking about is you've got then irrational people who are running medicine <laughs> like uh, and then you talk about mental health and it's like so who's got the issue like who's got the issue right right i mean and i and i have issues right because i'm a human being i've been through things things have happened to me and i can appreciate the issues i possess (laughs) and working through and at the same time you know society does not permit my issues to take over how i operate i can't do that i don't have the wiggle room to do that like i have to have my stuff over there and I have to show up in the ways that I have to show up for the roles and responsibilities that I have. Um, and a lot of white people, specifically in positions of power, they 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 have not had to do that. They can bring all of their issues <laughs> into committees, work groups, you know, meetings, and it's just all on the table and expected to be processed as if it's like a therapy moment or even like ignored as if it's not present, you know, and that's very bizarre. And those kinds of things, again, those are happening in the APA as well. And um, it's, it gets really difficult to, for me personally, to keep swallowing things that don't make sense. Cause I am such like a sense making sense seeking person. Like I really struggle with things that just don't (laughs) make sense. Um, so I, you know, I did write about some of that in the, the medium piece, like, for example, um, not being allowed to participate in spaces where I had demonstrated expertise. That doesn't make any sense, especially when it's um, alongside like a expressed commitment to the very topic of DEI. And I think that just, again, represents the, the true ambivalence, ambivalence that most people in these organizations are walking around with. There's an external pressure to be uh, empathetic towards and engaged with morally the issue, but there's not a real, there's not a real um, authentic engagement with it. There's not real empathy there. And that ambivalence shows up in this just really silly decision-making around how to solve this identified problem of lacking diversity, not being inclusive, not being equitable. And that's why people just appear to be, um, disturbed (laughs) like if you just sit and watch like as if it was like a show on tv people appear to be disturbed they don't appear to be you know congruent in what they express and what they're actually doing and I feel bad or I I feel sympathy for that position maybe a little bit of empathy um a little bit for the most part I feel much more empathy for the people who have to suffer the consequences so 100 percent and when you were talking about that, about white people coming to these, you know, in whatever spaces, you know, bringing this issue, um, racism and all the multiple ways that manifests in various forms of oppression as well. Um, but then if you say anything about it, it's like, come on now, like we have to act civil, like, come on now, like mm-hmm. keep it professional. It's like, you didn't, you weren't civil and you weren't professional, like from the jump, but because it's normalized, like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know right you say anything mm-hmm. you're the one with the problem it's like you right it's like you're the one with the problem right. right i was talking about this recently with someone about what society could learn specifically from black people and really any person and or group that exists on the margins because being on the margins requires you or being pushed to the margins requires you to um tolerate a lot of things that those in the center don't have to. And by tolerate, I mean, restrain yourself and constrain yourself from your natural reactions to, for example, mistreatment. Um, so if someone's disrespectful towards you or treats you with less dignity than you deserve, your natural human reaction would be to be corrective uh, of that insult. And it's just very interesting in professionalism conversations that, that it's actually flipped 
where we have to be the people on the margins. We have to be educated on professionalism. We have to be um, held accountable to professionalism. Um, And if those people who believe themselves to be the utmost professionals, specifically white, often men, often cisgender, often the whole list, are often ones who are get the most permission to be unprofessional. Mm. And uh, should we make a mistake ever in showing anything <laughs> like suggestive of our human response to disrespect um, or indignities uh, will be, um, you know, burned at the stake. So it's just so interesting how um, that racist perception of um, racialized minority groups um distorts even the reality that we are forced to be the utmost professional because of our very existence on the margins. And there's a lot others could learn about that. And specifically we were talking about earlier, what people bring into meetings and committees and work groups. We don't, well, that's not true. We manage ourselves because there's an, a, a higher expectation that we will and others have a capacity for managing themselves as well. But there's like a disproportionate burden on some in that space versus others. So that's where things like fragility are a part of the discussion where a lot, a high level of emotional reactivity can be permitted in ways that just would never be allowed um, for other people. And one specific example of this um, was... Uh, when I was in a meeting uh, within the APA where I was talking under a high level of racial stress. So I mean like sweating, heart racing, brain going like a hundred miles per hour, trying to articulate a point in a space where people were not really um, understanding the point. And someone comes off of their mic in this virtual space just to offer an annoyed sigh of frustration in the middle of a business meeting. I was like, I had to like restrain Jessica from Fayetteville in that moment um, because I didn't have a choice. Because should I break from my commitment to professionalism, that would be a ding against my my advocacy moment. Um, whereas this person was permitted to let out their full emotional experience in that moment of frustration with me and what I was advocating for, which was addressing cultural racism in the organization. Um, so there's so many of those like micro moments, micro meaning, you know, at the level of interpersonal moments that happen. And um, that's not often talk about, talked about in conversations where they're trying to teach often us <laughs> how to be more professional. It's like, no, we should teach you because um, we're, we're really good at this because we have to be. So, yeah, back to the racial gaslighting, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let me find out whose side. <laughs> I'm going to send you a stern email or we need to have a conversation about this offline. Cause I, I want to sigh all the time and I do, but I turn my camera off and I keep myself muted and I just send an exasperate, exasperated text because that's the professional thing to do, not to disrupt a meeting with my feelings, um, especially when they're misplaced. So. Yeah, that is, that is ridiculous, but it ha- but that kind of stuff happens all the time. It like does. you said, all the time. Yeah. So, you know, as we're kind of getting towards wrapping up, I want to talk about healing mm. and get your thoughts on, you know, healing, like mental health, medicine and healing and black healing and black joy and mm. kind of how all that ties together for you. Yeah. I mean... You know, um, there there might be some elder person <laughs> with lots of wisdom who would answer that question in a really beautiful way um, that suggests that they've gone through a journey of figuring out an answer, an answer, maybe not the perfect answer. And I would say for me right now, like for most people, it's trying to figure out how to reconcile my desire for healing with like the realities of like my daily experience, which really doesn't create space for, for healing. I think... Um, I think there are ways of accessing it that are accessible, such as like meditative practices and things like that. Um, I remember one meditation that's helped me in particular after a really, really high stress moment, um, especially like racial trauma moments, has been this meditation from a psychologist, a black psychologist. It's the Black Lives Matter meditation. And in it, it's it's 17 minutes and I have cried every single time. And that feels... <laughs> like healing. And all that she is saying in this meditation is um, 
that you're, you know, you're important, that you deserve to be loved, um, that you're intelligent, just really like countering what white supremacy rhetoric would convince you otherwise about your blackness. Those things are really beautiful as representation of healing. And then mostly as far as joy, it's just existing and like commiserating and laughing at, you know, finding some humor in our condition. So I was just doing that yesterday uh, in Seattle with a group of four um, black women, uh, two neurologists, a psych- me, the psychiatrist and a medical student. And we were talking about all kinds of stuff. And it was talking about authentically and openly and helping support each other, you know, and in those moments, just really um, not having to worry about the white gaze specifically for me can be very um healing. And also there's a lot of joy in that. And it just feels really good. Um, so with the pandemic, not not disappearing, but lessening, I'm personally looking forward to having more of those moments in real time, like in real life with people, because those have been sustaining for me. And I, I need a lot more of those <laughs> to survive 2022. Um, but as a collective, I do think the organizing um, around addressing like the larger system system issues, the larger institutional issues is also a part of um, healing as well, because we're not just like intervening on individuals now, but we are creating something for for our children, for our offspring. And um, I do find that to be really, really rewarding too. And there's a literature base that supports that that advocacy, like we talked about earlier, can be a helpful part of addressing um, living this life. (laughs) So yeah, like resistance as healing. Yeah. Yeah. What else is it? Well, I will say, I'll back up and say, uh, if there was like a hundred percent pie, how much of that pie should be devoted to resistance is also something I'm interrogating. Um, I've heard really beautiful um, articulations of this from a really young black woman. I think she's like 19. And she was basically saying, maybe we don't need to resist 24 seven. Maybe we just need to go eat a piece of pie or watch a show on TV or go out and look at the sky and like not give a damn about anything for however long we want to. So I am also personally negotiating how much of my time I spend devoted to resistance versus existing. And I think that I'll have a different, a more um, developed (laughs) proportion, you know, as I continue on my own personal journey. I so much appreciate you, you know, sharing your personal journey along with this professional journey and the work you do and coming on here, you know, to talk with me and get this, get your message out there to doing the work listeners and, um, you know, and also just to thank you for doing the work. The work you do is so critical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else is there to do? <laughs> yes, eat pie. <laughs> I was going to say eat pie, right? Yes, and, you know, um when you're given power and privilege, when you earn, I'll say when you are when you earn access to power and privilege, um what else is there to do with it besides contribute in some way? So, yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.